Hey, it's Jose Galison of No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me on the major podcatchers and on Odyssey as well. Uh, today, my guest is Jeremy Kaufman. Uh, once again, I'll keep reminding you guys that uh, the way this works is right now, uh, if you're watching this uh, on the 21st at 8.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, you are watching the live stream version. Uh, it will immediately after, I'll put it as unlisted, and then I will release it as a numbered episode later. Um, so my patrons will have access to the link so they don't have to hunt it down because it'll be unlisted. So if you have the link, you can watch it later. But, um, also my patrons will have the advantage of being able to do super chats or, or not super chats. They, they'll, I give them a little code ahead of time. So I, and if I see it, I know to, to prioritize them in the chat. So it'll be almost as if they're super chatting. So that's a little, uh, thing they get for that. Uh, like I said, I think I already said, uh, my guest today is Kaufman and, what we're going to be covering is we're doing another Anarchist Handbook episode, um, which I've been loving these. Um, trying to space them out a good amount so they're more of an event. Uh, we're going to be covering David Friedman today, which uh, this is actually the first uh, essay of Friedman's I've read. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised because I actually got it. kind of gets a bad stigma from our ilk um, in, in certain circles. And I'm sure we'll cover that as well. Um, as always, I like money. I brought up uh, I brought up Patreon earlier, so patreon.com slash NoWayJose2020 if you would like to be a patron. Uh, also, go check out Top Lobster at toplobster.com. He has a lot of great merch. Uh, yeah, also, you guys saw the new intro. This is the second time I played the intro. I didn't get hit for copyright, so you know I keep having to make little minor alterations. Or, or uh, uh, Justin Campbell, my guy, uh, my dude. Uh, for any podcasters out there who need a guy, Justin Campbell. I can't remember his Twitter thing, so but Justin Campbell, I think it might be that might be his handle. Um, but yeah, definitely go hit him up if you have any needs for that. But he's been kind of making little alterations till they finally stop dinging me for uh, for copyright, and uh, I think I think I'm good. I think I finally made enough alterations to where they won't mess with me, or at least I mean it's one 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 instance where they haven't. So uh, we'll see where that goes. If not, then we'll have to keep making alterations till they stop. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and bring in Jeremy and we'll get to this. What's up, Jeremy? Hey, it's great hey. to be here with you. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's great. I'm glad to have you back. Uh, I, I, uh, really enjoyed our episode before and then also on Tower Power Hour. Uh, I, uh, you are, you are one of the people, one of the only people within the LP that I think may, you're like in order of preferences, like everyone knows I'm an agorist. The joke is I say like, as an agorist or whatever. But like in order of preferences, like within the LP route, you're like the top. Like whatever the fuck your your tactic or strategy is, that's like the top of the LP strategies in my order of preferences. And I, <laughs> and I, I mean, and as we're gonna hear tonight, I mean, I am an establishment shill. You know, uh, I like David Friedman. I I I like uh, some consequentialist arguments. I'm even gonna defend. I'm even gonna talk about how great Milton Friedman is tonight. So we're we're in for a blue pilled regime episode here uh tonight yeah and i, I think i kind of agree with you we'll get into that a little bit uh because i know uh you know rothbard and freeman kind of have their their uh butting heads and i as time more time goes on i kind of more agree with the practical argument although there are there's merits to the moral argument as well which is kind of where rothbard's coming from uh for sure it's almost like different strokes different folks uh you know who, who depends on how you're attacking the problem um but you want to go ahead and introduce yourself i know you've been on our on, on my show before and on tower power hour and 
been around, but uh, I have a smaller show, so I always just act as if it's the first episode for every guest I have. So sure. you can introduce yourself to the audience. So. Sure, I'll, I'll give my libertarian introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live in New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project. I'm on the board of directors there, and I'm actually currently helping run that organization currently. Uh, I'm on the communications team for uh, LPNH, Libertarian Party of New Hampshire, uh, the most based libertarian party affiliate out there sorry connecticut and kentucky but you know you'll catch us eventually actually you won't because you'll move here uh and uh, i am i'm also uh in my entrepreneurial work i'm pretty involved in in libertarianism but unless you want to get into that we'll we'll just keep it on the on the philosophical side yeah no we we, we don't have to go deep into that uh I think most people know what you're most known for, which I know you try to separate these two worlds, so we won't go into that unless you want to. Well, you should. Uh, I do. I'm involved in running Odyssey uh, yeah, there and, you go. <laughs> and Library, so if you want to mention you know, where your, your show could also be found on yes. Odyssey, you know. Yeah. Um, this is but, entire power hour, so you don't have to worry about too much crudeness here being associated <laughs> with that brand. So. No, I'm not. I'm honestly, I'm, a, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with, uh, with the crudeness. I just I uh, I avoid I want to avoid conflating you know political things with my um with my work because my political things they're my not to I will all right I'm gonna I'll give a minor rant which is like I'm a I see libertarianism as like it's my preference I don't see it as like objectively correct um I, you know I could make arguments for this I can try to argue why you should be a libertarian but like what I'm most firmly about it's almost like a a Descartian kind of like, well, I know I want this. So I know this is true. Like I know that I want libertarianism. And to me, that's sufficient. I don't need to, to, I don't need libertarianism to be correct for you. All I need is I want it. Other people want it. We deserve it. Right. Like, and that argument works for communism, by the way, communists deserve to have communism. I think they'll be unhappy uh, with the results, but people would say that to us, right? People would say, Oh, you libertarians, you fools. You would you will be unhappy if you get what you want, and so to me, libertarianism it's my preference. I don't. I'll try to persuade you if you're interested, but if you want democratic socialism, uh, you deserve to get it good and hard. Is my opinion. So yeah, no, I am same exact way. I mean, I feel like that's a kind of one of those things. Uh, you know, as you get further down this path, you stop being this like. I know people always just say like if 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 anyone's not free, then no, or no one's free, or whatever the hell the saying is. I hate you know, like, that phrase. I, I hate, hate it because it's like yeah. no, that's completely wrong like i i can be free and that other person cannot be free and especially if you're in a situation where it's like i completely laid out like how you could be free as well and you don't it's kind of like well okay (laughs) so yeah but um so let's go ahead and get into who is friedman uh so if you want to lay out who he is for people who don't know him yeah, super so, chat machinery of freedom. Yes, that's the excerpt we will be covering today. So, Machi- D- David Friedman is the author of Machinery of Freedom. He, mm-hmm. I mean, David Friedman is like prolific. So, there's a lot of ways to get into David Friedman. But from the libertarian side, Machinery of Freedom is uh, probably the best way. It's a free book. He's done multiple editions. Uh, David Friedman. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think I'm a moron. I think I'm pretty smart, actually. But they, I, I interact with Dave, and I'm like, okay, that's it's like they're guys who are a good, good, solid notch above me, right? It's a good, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a good reminder. I think he's absolutely brilliant, and he's brilliant. And, but he's also he's like he's a humble guy. Uh, it's one of the reasons I have a lot of respect for him. I have a lot of respect for people who are simultaneously, you know, putting, um, putting interesting ideas out there, putting interesting thoughts out there but he's willing to admit that he's wrong he's he tries to see the other side so 
intellectually and, and the way he conducts himself, he's, he's someone who I have a lot of respect for. I aspire to be as good as he is at that kind of thing. He, I mean, he has degrees in physics, but he did uh, economics. He's a legal scholar. He has a great book, Legal Systems, very different than ours, uh, which is just this review of all of the different ways that society has been organized throughout history. He is the son of Milton Friedman, as well as the father of Patry Friedman. Uh, and Patry's very involved in the seasteading movement. The Seasteading Institute was his creation. I think he's moved on from that and he's now uh, doing something else, but he's still central to seasteading and this idea of, of, of private cities. Actually, I think he's moved on from seasteading to just private cities. So they're, they're really one of, I mean, it's three generations of, uh, of libertarians. Um, David, I said David was blue-pilled. He's really not. Uh, the video I shared earlier today, he calls his father jokingly and completely tongue-in-cheek a socialist uh, because uh, Milton Friedman believed it was essentially a minarchist. Mm. Uh, and David Friedman says he's a full-on anarcho-capitalist. Uh, he says that we can have um, private government, uh, private provisioning of everything. And so to want uh, government courts is socialism, of course. Um, I think where David differs from a lot of other right anarchists or anarcho-capitalists or whatever you want to call them, or just libertarians, a lot of libertarians in general, actually, not even just anarchists, even from minarchists, is David is fairly consequentialist. Um, and so that is, he thinks that libertarianism is correct because it produces better consequences. He is less of a sort of natural rights or deontologist approach where he's saying like, you know, libertarianism is correct because of the nap and, um, you know, these things are just wrong, full stop, regardless of consequences. That's that's less his approach. Um, and I think he, both he and Milton, um, do get some flack um, from other libertarians for that. But I'm here. I'm here to give the defense or uh, or to talk about it. Uh, and I do really, uh, David is not, I, I realized I joked in the intro, but I shouldn't have done that maybe because people are unfamiliar. David is not really in that regime libertarian camp. If, if you engage with his work, that's really not a fair way to describe him. So I do encourage people to, to really check out the source material. But that's a, yeah, that's an intro to, to David. Okay, cool. Uh, so let's go into why, what he means to you and why, because you legit, when I put out a post, you know, looking for people, you volunteered yourself immediately for Friedman. So like you kind of jumped at it. So it's kind of like, I mean, obviously it means something to you. I believe we talked previously and you said he was very instrumental in your path along the way. So uh, I just kind of want to hear on that a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, both, um, both, both David and his father were honestly, um, it, it makes me a little bit nervous because I really I have such respect for David Friedman um, that to be here kind of discussing his ideas and his thoughts like it, it actually makes me a little bit nervous because like I hope like I hope he doesn't hear it you know uh, I don't want to like butcher it or whatever um, but in terms of my personal journey to to libertarianism um, sort of one of the early maybe the first or certainly one of the first sort of serious intellectual works was uh, Milton Friedman's uh, capitalism and freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And I was coming from a leftist background where capitalism was borderline demonized. You know, Milton, Milton Friedman in terms of the, and this, I was fairly young. I was maybe 18, 19, 20, you know, around that age. But like around my circle, like Milton Friedman was not, if someone knew who he was, it was not going to be a positive reaction to that name. 
Um, but I was always a curious person. And I, I've read, you know, especially in my youth, I would read books from all different sides. And I said, well, all right, I got to check this guy out. So I read Capitalism and, and Freedom. Uh, I found the ideas very persuasive. Now, Capitalism and Freedom and, and, and like the critiques of Milton as being, you know, this sort of regime libertarian, I think are much more fair than they are of David. I don't think regime libertarians even deserve some of the criticism that they get. Like I think Milton Friedman had a positive influence on America, not a negative one. I think if you watch the content from Free to Choose, it holds up very well. Um, he certainly made some mistakes, but you're not going to find many libertarians who ever achieved remotely the influence that Milton did. And mm -hmm. the nature of influence is that when you make mistakes, they have more impact, right? And so mm -hmm. Milton, I think, gets blamed because he was one of the most influential libertarians to really ever have the amount of power that he had, the amount of influence that he had. Um, but I think, uh, uh, so anyway, uh, I read him and uh, sort of later down the line, a couple of years later, I read David uh, and I started reading David's blog uh, and he, he still blogs. Uh, he ha uh, you, can, you can find it. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but certainly David Friedman blog is going gonna, is gonna to turn it up. Um, and he still does. He puts out great content. He puts out great content. Uh, he's on Facebook. You can friend him on Facebook. Uh, and he just makes these posts. And he's remarkably insightful about everything um, from COVID to the environment to economics. He's just one of those people where you're like, that's a really interesting idea. And I haven't seen someone else say it. He's not repackaging things that other people say. He's genuinely coming up with his own insights. And there's very few people uh, who do it so regularly as he does, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. It, it makes sense that they are so at all. We're, I guess not, I don't even really know if they were necessarily so at odds. Like that might be putting it wrong, but that we have these two people, Friedman and Rothbard, and they're both like polymaths. They're both geniuses. They're both they're just ridiculous. Like to the level of you're like it's just insane the amount of hobbies and different shit they do. You're just like it it boggles the mind. You're like who who the fuck does this? But I mean, it's impressive for sure. I did want to touch on it real quick. A lot of people uh, were, were like, when I was saying I was doing this, like, oh, you need to get Friedman. And I would like to have Friedman on at some point, but for the aesthetic I was going for and the feel, and also just felt like that was like the obvious choice. I, I wanted to, I mean, you were, once you jumped, it was kind of the perfect one. Cause it is also like, I want to kind of filter this more for the every man. So like someone who's more, I guess you're like more new and hip, and then you're also going to be able to filter some of his autism through a more, I guess you got a little through bit more autistic, different kind too, of a little autism. different type of autism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, and I, I definitely would like to do one with a little more deep in theory, but the idea is like, I joke that I'm a retard who reads books who, you know, uh, you know, tells it to other retards or whatever. So that's kind of the vibe I was going for with my Ericus handbook thing. Cause I know a lot of people aren't going to read this shit. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of filtering it for them. Um, so yeah. yeah, I'm happy to be that middle part of the, of the <laughs> human centipede that is uh, digesting. Yeah. It goes um, from Friedman to you, to me, like, it's like the, <laughs> the <sense of> autism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so look, well, I will say like, you don't have to, Hey, you're not going to buy the book. Fine. Don't buy the book. Go friend him on Facebook. If you still have a blog feed, put him in your blog feed. He's not on Twitter, uh, unfortunately, but he posts to Facebook multiple times a month. And he posts like, he, I mean, he, like, he's the kind of guy who's like, well, I read the 1000 page IPCC climate report. And here are some of the questions I have, but it's like a compact post. It's not like some like 
really long uh, diatribe. He's funny. He understands how to be, uh, you know, a little bit of a troll. He understands how to provoke. That's why I find it so funny that he calls his dad uh, a social. I mean, it's just so funny calling Milton Friedman. So I don't know. I get a big kick out of it. Yeah. Um, and he obviously uh, knows that, you know, his dad wasn't a socialist. Um, but he really does have a sense of humor about him. And uh, he's he's a very he's a very human guy. I went out, so I was in um, I was in, uh, what, what, what I was in the Bay Area, and I happened to be going out there for work. And David's also part of the sort of rationalist scene, um, effective altruism, Slate Star Codex, all of this, um, these various places. And he just had a meetup at his house, and it happened to overlap when I was there. So I went out, and you know he just had sixty people at his house. He cooked food for them. I mean, he's just a really nice guy. Um, and he's a very human kind of guy. He's definitely a little bit on the uh, on the spectrum. I don't know. Maybe all these brilliant people are because he's just brilliant. He's just mm. so brilliant. And um, but he's also yeah, he's very nice. He comes out to pork fest. He doesn't he doesn't ask for anything, uh, and he just likes talking and having conversations and sharing his ideas. And so I think you know even if someone disagrees with David, it's tough to have an, a, a kind of interpersonal interaction with him and not come away with like liking him um in, in my opinion yeah that has definitely been uh, the more i see him the more he is kind of endearing so it's yeah. kind of funny the uh the 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 shit he gets which we'll go into that next if you want to address uh what's up top uh jose and jeremy doing the lord's work i appreciate that uh, hey, brother. You, you are you are definitely you you actually have a skill unlike me so you, you keep it up too top yeah. <laughs> uh, well, but I, I, do, I will say Mil milton gets way more shit than david right like david's yeah. actually not known enough to get as much uh you know like i mean D milton was really you know of course he gets withholding and all this mm -hmm. stuff he gets blamed for um you know david i don't know is does david get crap from people maybe he I does like i don't he see does it. within he our does? circles like okay. the deep circles cuz i mean everyone knows the the hate the state thing so yeah, well, why Which, don't we I just mean, do that? Yeah. Let's talk yeah, that's through what the hate. That's, that's hate what I'm segueing to or yeah, trying okay. to, but you did it for me. There sorry, we go. <laughs> I don't care. Segway. Here we go. I'm not uh, a professional. <laughs> I'm an amateur. Neither am I. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I guess technically. Uh, but, yeah, no, I want to get into the hate the state thing because it is – he is very consequential. And, uh, I mean, I don't know a ton of the history behind all this. I've, I've, I've read the, the hate the state essay. I know he kind of gets flack for it. And I read The Machinery of Freedom, this excerpt, and I can totally get where people come from, but he's straight up just a consequentialist. But, and he even in this excerpt uh, from The Machinery of Freedom, he straight up does say at one point that, like when he's talking about national defense, like, oh, if we get to a point to where it's not reasonable to roll it back more, then, like, you know, whatever we'll hold off until we can either, or we'll either stay there or until, you know, technolo technology down the line allows for, or whatever. So he basically is essentially like, yeah, I mean, if we have to be minarchists for practical reasons, yeah, whatever. And you know what? I'm kind of like, in in a sense, I 100% agree. Right. Because it's like, if, if you were like, I, I, it's kind of like, I don't know, say you had someone who banged your girlfriend years ago and you absolutely hate them to death and you're laying there bleeding out dying and they're like, and you hate their guts, and they're the worst person in the world. They're an absolute piece of shit. And they're like, hey, man, you need me to take you to the hospital? And you're like, no, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, so, I don't get it. So this is one of David's, like, very, very insightful points, which is, like, no one, even if you're a natural rights or a nap-oriented libertarian, absolutely no one is an absolutist about it. Okay? If you, if you fall out of a balcony window – 
and catch someone's flagpole and the property holder says, let go, you're not going to let go, right? You're going to hold on to the flagpole. Uh, and he, you know, and there's a bunch of examples like this, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're going to freeze to death in the middle of the woods. Do you break into a cabin? Of course you do. Uh, you know, uh, a mass, uh, a mass shooting is happening or about to happen. And, um, your friend says, absolutely under no circumstances, you are not allowed to grab my weapon and stop that person. Do you grab the weapon again? I would grab the weapon, right? And I'm less of a consequentialist than I think even David is. But David's point here is that like no one is – it's all a continuum. They're, everyone breaks down in terms of their, their quote, principles for consequences uh, at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a very important thing to remember that like I, the NAP is not, uh, is not this end-all, be-all – and it answers everything. And of course, the other problem with the nap is uh, you know, people, it's not clear what is or is not aggression. Um, some people would take the stance that, you know, uh, going around without a mask on during a pandemic uh, is aggression because um, you're increasing the risk of, of spreading a harmful uh, disease to them, right? So even so, you know, this idea that somehow the nap is an answer uh, for libertarians as to what one can and cannot do, and we can just follow the nap. Uh, I I think it's to me it's it's very clear that's false. I think Friedman has a lot of content on this that that makes it relatively clear that it's false. Um, so from here, yeah, we can talk about the the national defense thing. And again, I would I would agree completely. And if Friedman puts it in some way that's like, you know, well, would you rather pay? So for, by the way, Friedman is an anarcho capitalist. He wants to solve these problems. He's not a minarchist. He wants to solve the problems of national defense and everything through voluntary means. Um, but he also accepts the conclusion, which I would, and it sounds like you would, that you know, if the question is, would I rather pay a 2% tax for national defense or a 20% tax to China after they conquer the country, although I think he uses Russia in his example because the book was in a different era, I would rather pay the 2% tax to uh, America. Like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we are libertarians because we think it will make the world a better place mm-hmm. because we think there'll be more progress because we think people will be better off. If it turned out that libertarianism resulted in a dystopia, you know, where there's like five people who own all the property and everyone else is a serf, I wouldn't be a libertarian anymore. I don't think it plays out that way. Um, but, and similarly, by the way, just in terms of being open-minded, if communism turned out to be this beautiful place, um, where everyone was taken care of and we continued to make, uh, you know, progress and innovate and all these things, maybe I'd become a communist. I think it's extremely unlikely that communism plays out the way. I think libertarianism is way more likely to play out in a positive fashion. But the point is, our, we don't hold our principles in a vacuum. We ultimately say, how do these principles play out? What do they produce? And if they produce certain things, we would reconsider, at least I would, I would reconsider my principles. Yeah, know? I definitely would too. I'm a, I mean, I've said many times, I'm, I'm like, I'm definitely more of an egoist, which I know a lot of people associate egoists with communists, but kind of plays to your point you were getting at earlier, where egoists, the whole idea is that like, the it essentially starts from the individual and works its way out. So what's it's kind of very Ayn Randian and like the 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 virtue of selfishness or whatever. Yeah. And like for me, I like that's why like for egoists, it's like they can be anything. Like basically, it's just a matter of like what you think makes the most sense. And for me, anarcho-capitalism is what you know. If we play it out from an individual level, it's like what's best for me is what's best for 
you know, I, I feel like if I can behave in that manner and encourage other ones to behave in that manner, that's what leads to the, the most prosperous society that's better for my family, which, of course, I have vested interest in and like and so on and so forth. And it's very, very this big brain thing of like, well, this is what I think works out best. And a lot of people go with like consequentialist arguments. So they're like, oh, well, you could just be like, well, then you could justify anything. I'm like, I mean, yeah, sort of. But you I mean, to some extent, you can do the same thing with a moral argument. But it's kind of this point of like I, like okay sure yeah i guess you technically could but you could also be wrong like i don't know what to tell you like i i, I mean it is this it almost comes off this like hate the state thing to me the more i think about it, it comes it comes off as immaturity to where it's like this like oh i hate the state and you know it's this moral argument but I, even to my own detriment like why (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. right and this is i don't want to and i do think this is where friedman differs and i used to hold a more friedman position as i interact with the government before more i I, truthfully i moved away from it but i think friedman does regard most people including most government officials as like well-intentioned people you know who want these these same outcomes uh in terms of you know prosperity uh, and human flourishing, but they're misguided in terms of how to achieve it. Whereas, you know, Rothbard would regard them as evil or you know or wrong, and and you know, um, and and that I would say is the difference. By the way, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong about this because I don't know the dispute between them that well. I, I I've mostly consumed their work independently, mm-hmm. but I don't. I think even Rothbard and Fried, like I don't think they hated each other. Yeah. Like I don't. I don't think they had that. Do, did they? Do you know? I, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about this today while I was working that like I, I just I can totally see both of their positions being rectifiable together because it's like his idea is do you hate the state? You can also hate the state and have a because I hate the state, but I also am coming from a consequentialist perspective of like, but I can hate something and also grit my teeth if it's somehow advantageous to me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm not going to I'm not going to do it to my own detriment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and what I will say one of the things that I, I one of my biggest complaints about libertarians is this like you know drawing of lines in the sand um and this like the infighting and all this stuff because i bet you know at the end of the day friedman and and rothbard they agree on 98 percent of things 99 percent of things there are very few differences between them and even among libertarians you know certain uh, you know maybe uh, you know these people and maybe i'm one of them you know, like to drag reason or drag cato or or whatever and certainly when maybe. i think they when they say that some of the crazy things that they say i'm not saying they don't deserve it but at the same time we need to remember that like these people are 95 plus percent aligned with us they are closer to us than the vast majority of people and for a group of people that are not winning and libertarians are not winning maybe in new hampshire they're winning, but libertarians are not winning you know we gotta we can't be uh excluding people we gotta find all the allies that we can uh, we don't have the privilege uh, of doing this kind of thing. And so I do, you know, well, I, I'm not opposed to disagreeing with people or, or saying when someone else is wrong. Like even something, someone like people who have came at me, like a, an Andy Craig or, or or some of these Cato types, it's like, I'd still work with those people in a second. I don't hate those people. I think they're foolish sometimes, but I still recognize that they're more similar to me than, um, you know, than almost anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, thanks for the super chat, Jermaine. Uh, all right, let's start uh, wheeling into the actual excerpt itself. Um, uh, I think we're totally in agreement, it sounds like, yeah. on the whole hate the state thing. Um, I know he did call out, uh, not to, to go back into it, but I, I know Rothbard did 
call out Friedman specifically in there, but so maybe there is some sort of contention there. I mean, I yeah, would actually, was... in retrospect, think that he was kind of wrong because I'm not a fan of the moral argument. I like the moral argument for as as condescending as it may sound. I like using moral arguments to kind of cut through bullshit because it's like if I'm talking to someone, it's a lot easier to make a moral argument than it is to sit there and explain to them like, well, you know, you you, you got to understand that there's Austrian economics. And if this happens and that happens and blah, 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 it's a lot easier to just be like, well, that's bad. You know, you're not supposed to do yeah. that because of morals. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry, you were going to say something? No, off. no, go ahead. I mean, I think we started to touch on, in terms of the excerpt from the handbook uh, itself, uh, which, and I think it's a fine excerpt, but it was good mm -hmm. to include in the book. I mean, to me, Friedman, this is, this excerpt is like, I don't even know that it's like one tenth of what's interesting about uh, um, Friedman, um, but we kind of touched on it because like the, the excerpt in the book, it, it basically focuses on national defense, how could or public goods generally, how can a public good be produced in an anarcho-capitalist society or in a voluntary uh, way? Should I talk about what a public good is? Uh sure. I was yeah. I was going to start with the. Uh... Because he, he goes with the devolving of uh, of the state into uh, or of the anarchism oh. back into a state. I was gonna I was gonna kind of right. go consequential because I do have like a lot right, of notes the in the step, book. Yeah, so. no. Okay, let's yeah. do that one. Sorry, you're right. I, I forgot yeah, yeah. that was also in the book. Um, this this part about does anarcho capitalism just devolve back into a, a state? Yeah, yeah. It, it very much. If you read this, it d definitely is. It's all it is. It's completely just an autism breakdown of if this then that and if this then that and it goes into like he he kind of presents the argument of like. Uh, you know, like, because the first thing he brings up is like, what would happen if we had anarchy? A lot of people, the, one of the critiques is that it will break back into, it'll, you know, devolve back into a state. And he kind of breaks it down. Like, for example, he talks about uh, initially about how like, uh, a lot of people say like, oh, people will just bribe the police force. And it's like, he goes into like, well, that wouldn't make sense because the, the police force would have this anarcho police force would have the vested interest in not doing that. So, I mean, obviously individuals, but yeah, like, uh, for example, like one good part, he goes, what about the possibility of the mafia getting its own agency? And he's talking about like insurance, like private anarcho-capitalist, like private insurance agencies type deal, uh, which is like a, what a lot of people go to is a, the go to for the ideal and magical in Kapistan. And he goes, uh, in order for such a firm to provide its clients with the service they want, protection against the consequences of their own crimes. And, and he kind of goes into how like, well, I mean, a lot of people go like, oh, what if the mafia gets into it? It's like, okay, well, then they're just doing, they're, they're, they're helping, you know, like, cause then, they, or, or no, he's talking about there about how they would uh, protect people like criminals against the cost of their own crimes. And it, it's, I forgot my whole point there, but it is very, just an autism stream in this. And like, yeah, if this and that, um, so and if, well, no, I, I, so, well, I will say in terms of my personal preferences, like, I like the theory. I find these like pure theoretical debates about, you know, ANCAP versus minarchy. It's like, okay, but they're both great. Like they're both way better than where we are. I think one point that, that Friedman makes here, that's very good. And he makes this point repeatedly, not just in this uh, case, but in many other cases where he talks about libertarianism is that like, it's. It's a mistake to be comparing this proposal to the ideal in which there is no corruption and no crime because that doesn't exist. Yeah, That doesn't exist today. And as a consequentialist, his question is, would this anarcho-capitalist design where you have competing rights organizations, would it be better or worse than what we have today? 
because the mafia exists today. The mafia gets away with crimes today. It's not as if democracy in the way that it, it, it produces rights protection is some particularly great system. Um, it makes mistakes all the time. Um, people are wrongly pr- prosecuted all the time. People get away with crimes all the time. And so uh, the first question that he would say is, is this going to be better or worse than the status quo? Um, and it's not a question of whether it would be perfect uh, or, or something like this. And I think this is a really, really good uh, point um, because so much of our current society is just so messed up. And so the question for libertarians or anarcho-capitalists is not would your society be perfect and have no problems, but is it would be would it be better than what we have, <laughs> uh, right? And yeah. I think the answer there is a resounding uh, is a resounding yes. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a common theme throughout. That it's he's not presenting any sort of utopia. He's literally just presenting like this is like like I brought up with the cops and bribery. He goes, oh yeah, even in an anarcho-capitalist system, there would be bribery, but it would be reduced because the incentives drive it this way and blah blah blah. Yeah, and because as uh, everyone like immediately you know has these assumptions, you know, like that the mafia is going to get into you know and they're going to eventually become the government all over again. But he's like, well, you know, the incentives would cause this. Um, I did want to. Uh, I, want to read this real quick he said another and related argument against anarcho-capitalism the strongest agency will always win the big fish will eat the little fish and the justice you get will depend on the military strength of the agency you patronize this is a fine description of governments but rights enforcement agencies are not territorial sovereigns one which settles its disputes on the battlefield is already lost however many battles it wins which uh, because battles are expensive, also dangerous for clients whose front yards get turned into fire, uh, free fire zones. The clients will find a less flamboyant protector. No clients means no money to pay the troops, which is fucking genius. Like it, the way he breaks it down, it was like I, I don't know. He's kind of I don't know if you have anything to say on that one, but uh, yeah. Look, I I mean I completely agree with him, and this is I think what he's I think this is part of what he's so good at is playing these things out and and you know recognizing what's the comparative uh, choice? And it's also part of why I respect him so much because he's not, he doesn't, he's not, you know, he's not a demagogue. He doesn't make these grandiose promises. He doesn't say these things will never happen. He says they're disincentivized to happen. They'll happen seldomly, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, that's a big part of why I have, you know, I have such respect for him. Yeah. Uh, Michael Ravel, I appreciate the uh, super chases. Appreciate this, this series. Uh, I believe this is supposed to be the N word. I'm not going to say that because I'm a respectable individual. Uh, keep it going. <laughs> uh, appreciate it, man. I was being silly, obviously. Uh, I do. This one's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it. I really love this because uh, perhaps the best way to see why anarcho capitalism would be so much more peaceful than our present system is by analogy. Consider our world as it would be if the cost of moving from one country to another were zero. Everyone lives in a house trailer and speaks the same language. One day, the president of France announces that because of troubles, with neighboring countries, new military taxes are being levied and conscription will begin shortly. The next morning, he finds himself ruling a peaceful but empty landscape, the population having been reduced to himself, three generals, and 27 war correspondents. Which, once again, is just genius because it is com- kind of pointing out the idea of having competing insurance agencies essentially being, you know, uh, I know a lot of people would compare them to governments, but that's kind of his point. It's like, sure, if you want to call them governments, okay, here's your analogy if they're governments. Like, it, yeah, they're you know, like this is the ideal version of government if we're going to have a quote unquote government. Although most ANCAPs would not describe those as governments because they're completely voluntary. So, yeah, right. I mean, exit exit rights are the key to everything, 
they're the missing piece. They're they're why a modern society is so screwed up uh, because there's not competition. There's exiting is very challenging, and uh, you know this is really what keeps the status quo, which in the which is not just in the U.S. It's everywhere, right? You basically have the equivalent of uh, you know of of an oligopoly. I mean, maybe this is jumping too much, but it just it made me think of of uh, David Friedman's one of his favorite quotes of mine. Um, which is that the ideal form of government is a competitive dictatorship like restaurants. So he says mm. restaurants are a competitive dictatorship. And I think restaurants are pretty great, um, mm. right? Like I can go to lots of different places. I'm almost always satisfied. I get good customer service. Uh, I don't choose what's on the menu. I have no say in how the restaurant is run. I choose where I want to eat, right? Mm. And this results in very high quality service. Um, and and so Friedman would say that this same kind of property would be true uh, if we had to hire the people uh, who were protecting us and securing our rights. Yeah. Uh, here's another key insight that I thought was really interesting. He's talking on uh, why he, he's kind of pointing out why it wouldn't be this this frequent issue of, you know, coups be happening. Like he does admit that I guess it's technically a possibility but he goes, once again, not being a utopian, because with these insurance agencies, he's like kind of the point is like, why don't they just group together and have a coup and rule? Uh, he goes into, in our society, the men who must engineer such a coup are politicians, military officers, and policemen. Men selected pre precisely for the characteristic of desiring power and being good at using it. I'm going to go more into it here in a second, but I do want to point out, let people know I just got in the military, and I can tell you firsthand the people who rise to the top are the people who have a proclivity for exerting power or having those sorts of behaviors. They're not the people who are the most efficient at their job whatsoever. I mean, there is they do try to incentivize within the military. Uh, you know, they, they always kind of do this like a uh, limp wristed attempt at fucking, you know, being like, oh, well, this person's got their job. But generally speaking, that's not what gets you promoted. So the people who end up towards the top are not the people who are like, oh, like I was a mechanic. They're generally not great mechanics who end up at the top. It's generally people who have a proclivity for power and a desire for power. And even though it is a silly position where it's like you don't have a ton of power, it's just that's just the way humanity works. Um, he, go, he goes, uh, they are men who already believe that they have a right to push other men around. That is their job. They are particularly well qualified for the job of seizing power. Under uh, anarcho-capitalism, the men in control of agencies are selected for the ability to run an efficient business and please their customers. Uh, it's always possible that some will turn out to be secret power freaks as well, but it's surely less likely that under a system where the corresponding jobs are labeled non-power freaks need not apply. Uh, which, I mean, once again, a great insight. Um, and I, it's one of those things you don't really think about. He really does like he clearly took the time to think through all these different little things because I, I don't know it is one of those things I don't think gets pointed out a lot like that. Like the people who rise to the top in these agencies aren't going to be the same people who rise to the top in our current system. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, think about think about, you know, the Uber. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe some people don't like this. It was um, what's that uh, British television show that does these dystopian things? It's on. Uh, Netflix. Oh, Black Mirror. Uh, yeah, Black Mirror. Black yeah, Mirror. Right there's, yeah, right. I I love that show too. I was just blanking. I haven't watched it in a while. The you know there's that Black Mirror episode where like everyone's raided right after everything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I can appreciate some aspects of that 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 feel dystopian. But the truth is, if I look at things like eBay or Uber or these kinds of things, they do produce pretty quality 
service. It's rare that I get an Uber driver that sucks, right? Uh, and you know, so if you have similar mechanisms for the people who are protecting your rights, like you know, part of it right now is if you're if you are this power hungry sociopath who gets off on the ability to hurt people and exert control over them. The mechanisms for get, keeping these people out of the police force are very weak. They're in a union. Um, they don't suffer consequences of their action, nor does the department generally. Whereas if you give them these different incentives where, hey, if, if I hire cops that suck, I'm going to lose money, right? And you have that sort of business-type ruthlessness uh, in terms of the people operating the companies, like it makes a lot of sense uh to not hire bad cops to not hire shitty cops whereas the current system i'm not saying the current system is incentivized to hire shitty cops but i think if you want to be a shitty cop you can get hired you can get away with it and there's not a good mechanism for calling you yeah uh the next point i was gonna bring up plays perfectly what you were just getting at uh he's kind of talking about uh you know how these different agencies would 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 act and he goes this does not mean that they will never coerce anyone and then you know kind of dot 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 um, in each case, coercion occurs, but it occurs by accident, and the coer coercer is liable for the consequences of his acts, which is like a lot of people don't realize, like say with like cops, like people, it boggles the mind for people to think of like how it would work a, you know, a protection agency or whatever you call them, if you want to for, for shorthand here, like we can call them cops, private cops, whatever, like if they arrest someone or do whatever it is they got to do. If they arrest the wrong person in, in Kapistan or wherever the hell, they are at fault. So, and uh, it, it, it doesn't even like compute with most people's minds on this current paradigm how that would even work. And it's like, well, how that would work is they would be damn sure they have their man because they're going to have to pay out money or something, or that guy could very well probably lose his job or have a demerit or whatever the hell. Uh, so, it, it is, which I mean, it so sounds dumb and silly, but. When, but when you, you say that to the normal normie, you know, they go, what? Like, how would anything happen? You know? like Yeah. 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 Right. And then this is, again, where I think it's so important to, to compare it to the status quo um, and where, you know, democracy is so ineffectual at producing changes or accountability in, kinds, in these kinds of things. I mean, I mean, look at, <laughs> I mean, look at the support, at least ostensible support for ending qualified immunity last summer where we had... Uh, these people going into the streets who said our cops suck and no one, I think maybe Colorado ended qualified immunity in like a limited way. It didn't happen anywhere. And, you know, the way that our cops are, are governed currently, it's like, okay, every couple of years you vote for a mayor and that mayor, you know, there's a whole portfolio of things that mayor is responsible for where policing is a small one of them. The mayor's hired. The mayor has the mayor can replace the police chief like maybe they don't actually have, you know, hiring authority over these things. And it's and um, and of course, you have police unions and all these things that are protected. And so it's like, how is that supposed to produce good cops? Right. And that's what we're comparing it to. Uh, would, you know, where Friedman would continue to emphasize is like we're comparing it to the status quo of democracy and how democracy produces a policing system. We're not comparing it to whatever you're, you're the people always want to compare it to like this system where, Oh, well just good people go and become cops. Right. Mm -hmm. And it would be worse than that. And it's like, well, that's so we don't have that system. There's not a yeah. mechanism for producing that system. This system is closer to that of just good people becoming cops than what we have currently.
Yeah, to play in the cop thing, such special rights allow a government to kill its opponents and then apologize for the mistake. Like, yeah. that's just one line, but I just thought that was, like, so, so, yeah. like, like, how do you expect them to be held to anything at all if they, they just go, oops, like, oh, my bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, how often do we see cops get off? Uh, for example, uh, I'll, I'll kind of bookend this section right here. Um, this one's a little bit long. Uh, I'll kind of summarize the first part. He talks about how there was this, uh, this, this raid in which two men were killed. Uh, the cops who did it were charged uh, not with conspiracy to kill murder, but with obstruction of justice. And uh, essentially, they weren't they weren't charged with killing someone. They were charged with lying about it because yeah. uh, the whole situation is they legit, I guess, like lied about the whole situation. Uh, they completely botched, you know, killed the dude, uh, killed a couple guys, and lied about it. And then they got they just got in trouble for lying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's. A, and that's not uncommon. Like I, I, I think even pointed out in there, it's like it's not uncommon at all. Uh, I'll, just to finish it off, this is not an isolated instance of the miscarriage of justice. It is a natural result of a system under which the government has certain special rights above and beyond the rights of ordinary individuals. Among them, the right not to be held responsible for its mistakes. When these rights are taken away, when the agent of government is reduced to the status of a private citizen and has the same rights and responsibilities as his neighbors, what remains is no longer a government. I think a lot of people don't, don't take into account so much incentives and how they act. Like if you give this agency, you know, this right to do a certain thing, it's going to eventually go to its reductio ad absurdum. It's just naturally the incentives are going to drive it that way. And yeah, I mean, I know initially, whenever it's say 1776 or whatever the fuck, it maybe it wasn't so bad, but it, you know, over time it degrades. So yeah, yeah. Go on. I and I I reread um, the the passage in the handbook in anticipation of this episode, and I I caught that as well. That uh, you know, that's actually sort of Friedman's definition of a government. It's actually very similar to someone like a Michael Humer, uh, or I don't know. I think of Michael Humer as like. A, the next iteration of Spooner, although I don't know if he would agree with that label, but you know, Friedman is basically saying that like, you know, government is people with special rights. Um, and so, you know, this idea that like, you know, once, once police officers have to follow the same rules as private citizens in terms of accountability and what they can do, um, you know, that makes them not a government, uh, which, which I, I, is it, is it, is a definition I think I would agree with. Oh, yeah, for sure. I definitely would agree with that as well. All right, let's move into public goods, which naturally leads into a the national defense because that's kind of what a public good is. Yeah. So uh, we can kind of skim a little bit over the public good, but I don't know if you want to provide a definition of it. Well, I do. I mean, I, I don't know. You Maybe it's unnecessary for the science, but public good, I, 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 I want to almost – I've tried to coin a rule, which is that like – Anyone who refers to something as a public good doesn't know what one is um, because you hear people talk about, you know, education is a public good uh, or parks are a public good. And this is not what a public good is, right? A public good is a specific economic term, and it has to do with a good that people can't be excluded from receiving. OK, so that is that like, you know, if I want to build a private park, I can exclude you for not paying the membership fee. If I want to build a school, I can exclude you for not. Uh, uh, for not paying the price of attending it. If I want to defend the country, I can't exclude you from receiving that defense, right? So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna defend you from foreign invasion, I can't just not defend. Like everyone pays me, but you, I can't exclude you. You're gonna get defended anyway. Um, and these are some of the um, for libertarians and particularly for anarcho-capitalists, the provision of this kind of good is is basically the trickiest problem. How do you provide public goods in a voluntary 
way without without coercion. And David Friedman, one of the things he says in this uh, part of the book is this he says national defense is the hardest problem for anarcho-capitalists. And from talking to David, I I def, I actually think that he's not 100% convinced that national defense could be done in an ANCAP way. He wants it to be doable in an ANCAP way. But if if you said David Friedman, what's the number one way that you think anarcho-capitalism might fail? He would probably say national defense. Which I find funny because I don't know maybe I don't know why or how, but just for me that that that's not the case. I don't know if that's the case for you. I I just I guess for me it's kind of like well I don't get why that'd be that much of an issue. Like I I don't find it necessarily necessary uh, to I I don't because for one I don't even think you need to have a national defense. It's like you look at places like Afghanistan or Vietnam, you kind of see the idea the the benefit of guerrilla warfare and not having an established like. And people will naturally, you know, guerrilla groups will come together and work together in, in for their common benefit. I mean, you don't need to if you have this militia and that militia, and this militia. I don't feel like you really necessarily need uh, too much to get them to come together if, if someone's messing with them. I mean, that's the way I see it. Um, I, I don't know if you dis- disagree at all. I, I guess I, I kind of like to hear your thoughts because I, I guess I don't get the sticking point at all. For me, it doesn't click. I don't. I don't know. I, I, in my head, I can see a million ways why it wouldn't really be an issue. Like, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a bit ambivalent on it. And I mean, I, and, and in the case of David, I mean, the first edition of Machinery of Freedom was written in the 1970s, so a bit, a bit closer to World War II than we are now. You know, we're so we're 50 years. Uh, or, or pushing 50 years. I don't know when the exact year the first edition of Machinery of Freedom came out, but it was definitely during the 70s. So we're pushing 50 years away from that, and we haven't really seen um, that that kind of major war. Um, but we have seen wars that are resource-based. If the United States possessed the same amount of economic prosperity that it has now and literally no defenses... It doesn't seem inconceivable to me that a foreign power would want to be involved or justify reasons to be involved. I, I like I agree with you at the same time. Like it doesn't feel like it would happen immediately or that it's like absolutely necessary that it would uh, happen. But 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 honestly, if it wouldn't happen, that's kind of weird because yeah. con- conquest is human nature so far as i can yeah. tell it's happened throughout our history and if we're resource rich and defenseless those are the kinds of groups that have gotten attacked throughout histories right so I, you know i don't i i don't know it certainly seems yeah. that like it makes sense to be thinking about it i guess yeah no it's it's a fun thought process but for me i guess i i don't understand it being a sticking point because i get what you're saying but at the same time if you have this large mass of land that's incredibly decentralized there's no centralized thing for an other agency to take over and be like haha this is mine like i mean well, maybe they can get isolated resources here and there but it's I mean, you're playing a weird game, and you I mean it's like Afghanistan times a hundred, essentially. Well, but it doesn't have to be natural resources. Yeah. It can, well, it can, a, yeah. Well, but you know, I mean, I th- think that's a natural way to think about it. But like, right? Imagine America mm-hmm. has no defenses, and all of our corporations have no defenses, and like, you know, I don't know. I'm I, not that like China really is the bad guy, but I'll continue to use China as the example. And you know, China just sends, I don't know. 10,000 troops into Amazon headquarters and says, give us 2% of your profits, right? Um, it would be very profitable 
for China to do that kind of uh, move. Um, I mean, I guess we could expect every corporation to independently provide defense for itself um, yeah. or something like this. Um, and by the way, Friedman, I think, talks about this, that like one of the ways it could be provisioned is from larger corporations, um, you know, wanting to spend that money to kind of protect, um, you know, protect their areas. Because I agree, like China's not going to come in and disrupt a small town you know they're not it doesn't make any i agree that that's yeah. like not gonna happen yeah um, and also i do not to be a stickler or to cause a whole other hour hour discussion but i genuinely don't think in magical in Kapistan we would have an amazon or a google or a, any sort of mega corporation like we do now it would be far more i'm not saying there wouldn't be large companies or whatever i i'm i, I just think it would be you'd have a far less of this dramatic like you know, like it'd be more decentralized, even on a business level. It would be a lot harder for these huge businesses to rise to this level. So, uh, just sneezing there. Um, <laughs> I uh, I don't know how much this mic captures. Uh, I <laughs> uh, I'm sympathetic to that. I, you yeah. know, to me, I, one of the things, and I, like I'm not trying to avoid the thought experiments. I find them interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've seen as an entrepreneur is that what happens in real life frequently doesn't match my imagination. Mm. And so when I apply that mentality to this, I'm like, I don't know, who knows? Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I do think right, corporations get a bunch of protections from the government that allow them to be as big as they are, both from, I mean, starting with just the liability shield to, to IP, to regulations that effectively make it more efficient to be larger because regulatory compliance is like a fixed cost. So you save if you're larger. Um, at the same time, it's like, well, I mean, it does kind of, I mean, but I don't know. It's so difficult to play it out. Like it does make sense to me just thinking about it for like all three seconds that some entity would attempt to become the most efficient, you know, would be this really hyper-efficient logistical distributor of goods like Amazon is. Mm. But I don't know. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it would be this network of, you know, a hundred different providers with thousands of, different. you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Frank, uh, I see just, I see you in the chat asking questions because you kind of jumped in late. Um, this is an excerpt from Machinery of Freedom. Uh, it's uh, specifically uh, the part on um, mostly on national defense and then uh, the argument of why uh, why in Kapistan wouldn't devolve into fucking uh, into back into a state uh, necessarily. Yeah. Um, but so uh, I will, I will, I guess just a couple of, I mean, Friedman's ideas here just to, to talk about them, about how these kinds of, let's assume that it is necessary for national defense. Uh, you know, so Friedman talks about the fact that one, that um, corporations and larger entities would have an incentive, that individuals would have an incentive, and that the value of providing it would be so much more than the cost that you could tolerate a lot of defection. Um, there's this idea of Friedman, and this is a, uh, we haven't talked about Friedman as a futurist yet, um, but one of the things that Friedman talks about is this idea of assurance contracts. An assurance contract is basically a Kickstarter uh, where you're saying, I will produce this thing if I get enough money. Um, so that's one way of providing national defense. And of course, Friedman recognizes that there's incentive to defect. Um, but assurance contracts have been innovated on. There's this concept of a do- dominant assurance contract, which Friedman is familiar with now, uh, but wasn't a concept when he originally wrote the book that could also help um, improve this. That's an idea of Alex Tabrox. Um, Friedman also talks about the social nature. I mean, he's not this pure, he's not like a, 
this, you know, homo homunculus, like, you know, it's not rational. Like he understands society. He understands the fact that like, hey, if we have a culture where you're not regarded as a good person, if you don't pay your $200 a year national defense fee, you know, that that can be a, that can be part of, of, of providing these things. So he does ultimately, you know, kind of, he also talks about, um, uh, nuclear weapons and mutually assured mm. dis- destruction, uh, where that's actually not that expensive mm. of, of a system to, to maintain and make possible. So he does ultimately think that it's possible to do these kinds of things in a voluntary way. Yeah, uh, Sal's in the chat. Just want to point that out. Uh, David Friedman, the medieval cook. That is a thing. Right. That's one of his many hobbies, isn't it? Yeah, and that's another <laughs> way where, like, yeah, he's one of these guys who's so prolific. Yeah, he's big in the society of creative anachronism. Uh, so these are the people who, like, they attempt to recreate uh, mm-hmm. old recipes and old ways of combat uh, and all these antique ways of doing this. He did this when he was at when I was at his house. He made some recipe from like the 1700s and some you know, highly authentic way. And I don't even remember what it was, but I remember that, that he did take the time uh, to do that. And that's what he is. He's one of these guys. He's just like, he's like, Oh, of course I've spent, of course I've read 27 cookbooks that were written in the 16th and 17th century. You haven't, you know, uh, but of course he's not condescending either, but you know, he's, <laughs> he's like that. He just consumes all of this information um, uh, and a very talented guy in that regard. Yeah. Uh, all right, I want to kind of move on to – I won't go into some of the more obvious like ways of national defense, but I did want to go into – he did have some interesting insights that I thought were just kind of fun. Uh, for example, he goes, similarly, if national defense were financed voluntarily, people would give money not as a matter of charity but because they felt that they were receiving something and ought to pay for it. So he goes into tipping, which yeah. sounds stupid, but you're like people tip all the time. And if it's something that you literally have a vested interest in and it's this – you know, you would think in a anarchist society, you would have a social stigma of, hey, this is what's good. Like this would be what, how society, this is the incentives that would be, you know, in place. You'd be like, well, we like to be protected. So what, what is it to kick in a few bucks here or there, you know? And, you know, obviously those who can will and those who can't won't and like, you know, so on and so forth. So Right, right. I mean, there are all kinds of human uh, systems that work because we feel that we ought to do it. I, you know, t- to me, this is, and this is not from Friedman, although maybe it is, maybe I've forgotten, I stole it from him. But uh, traffic is a great example here where like, uh, you know, I'm guessing that you and most libertarians are not wholly selfish drivers who attempt to purely maximize the time that you get there and screw everyone else. You know, if someone puts on their turn signal, you let them go. If someone, if someone needs to merge, you let them merge. You know, these, we, we want to be uh, social beings. We accept that, you know, by being, um, you know, pro-social, the system can work better as a whole. And so this is a reason for uh, people to do it. This is another idea. This isn't from Friedman. I don't remember who I got this to. But you can, you can even imagine um, something like uh, stickers uh, or decals or other social mechanisms. So unless you paid your um, national defense fee of $250 a year or $500 a year, you don't get the marking to put on your house that proves that you're one of those people. So there's the few people who would defect and not protect the country can be cleanly stigmatized um, and identified as, as bad actors. Yeah. Uh, he also, I do like how he kind of went into in, the, in this about like, he goes into like the second amendment and how militias came about. And he kind of goes into uh, the benefits of an established like state essentially, or, 
or or professional, you know, in an anarcho-capitalist type situation, uh, military, because he kind of goes into how effective they are, but he goes into it's a double-edged sword. He says at one point in how, you know, uh, if you have that, then also now you create this professional army in, in, in a government sense that will then kind of control the nation. But then he kind of uses that as a template to jump off of, of like, I guess, because the Second Amendment, you know, the militia aspect, he goes into like they pulled that idea from that. I forget. He used the example of uh, the who was it? the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Oliver Cromwell. I guess he had he had had a professional army at one point, which they were able to, you know, whatever endeavor they had, they were able to be successful. But then they end up kind of being a borderline dictator afterwards. So he kind of but he goes into how that uh, like when we came up with the Second Amendment, we were using that as a template. But he goes into how having a small professional army, but then having kind of like, you know, good old boys who are kind of your cannon fodder, if you will, who are kind of fill up the ranks. They kind of take on the less uh, the less um, technical positions, so on and so forth, uh, how that would work out well. And he kind of goes into that it's not necessarily necessarily going to be as expensive as you think uh, because of the fact that, you know, all you would need is have a small force of people that, you know, they could be the professionals that like in non-war times, they're, you know, they're, they could be your, your firearm instructors who, or whatever, you know, like at the range and so on and so forth. But when the time comes, you know, hey, all right, cool, let's go. And you kind of get your good old boys militia together, you know, the non-paid guys and, you know, they go protect their, they do their duty, you know, which would be their social duty in their eyes, you know, not, not like a government duty. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really interesting way that he put that. I don't have any thoughts on that before we go further. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the point there, which I think is very good is that like, uh, men in particular, they like being protectors. They like being able to show that they are, um, you know, tough and, and capable. You know, we have all these impulses and it's, it is this kind of thing. Um, that people are effectively willing to subsidize uh, in the, or, or, or be altruistic about um, uh, in the sense uh, – and I don't mean that it's altruism in this – that it's purely altruistic because there are these social benefits from, from providing it. But yeah, it makes a lot – I mean look at how many people are volunteer firefighters and, and join the National Guard when it's not in their economic – necessarily their economic interest to do so and this kind of thing. There is a, a, a civic benefit and a social benefit from providing these kinds of things and doing these kinds of things. Yeah, and he makes his point further by bringing up paintball, which I mean it, you could bring up a million other examples, you know, mixed martial arts, you know, just general fitness, anything, stuff like that. That's stuff that people – People like to keep themselves in shape for similar reasons or, you know, you could even make an argument probably for like, you know, first person shooters, whatever. Like, <laughs> oh, wow. Like you're catching on to me. Um, but uh, yeah, he kind of brings in how paintball and how people you could totally create a social stigma, not even a social stigma where it's like a thing for fun. But there's this added benefit of like, hey, this helps. Uh, and I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be this thing you beat over your head with that people would have to. But people do it because they want to i mean like i said first person shooters would be another good example of how you could do stuff like that you could uh, i don't know i I just thought that was a really good uh good point that he brought up because i don't know the way he brought it up was a really interesting way to bring it up you know to i don't know i I never really thought of it in that way before i don't know if you had so no no he's i mean he 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 is the Origin. I mean, it did also. I did also read him. You know, sort of earlier in my trajectory than many other authors. But uh, he he certainly exposed me to that idea among uh, you know among many others. 
Yeah, uh, here's a little bit I thought it was cool. Is it a little uh, poem or excerpt from something else he put in there? He goes, we're a free people. We get up and slay the man who says we aren't. But as a little detail we never mentioned, if we don't volunteer in some corps or another, as combatants if we're fit, as non-combatants if we ain't, till we're 35, we don't vote, we don't get poor relief, and the women don't love us, which the last line is kind of, I mean, I know it sounds stupid, but I mean, that's kind of what, you know, drives the world around. You know, pussy. I mean, if yep. you're a dude out there, that is kind of what drives the world around. And if you want to, you know, have a family, stuff like that, there are going to be certain um, incentives that, like, if you are not someone who can be a protector, especially in this anarcho-capitalist type situation where it's like it's legitimately possible that you may need to be able to do that. Uh, in this society, it would be far more of a, you know, you need to do things more for yourself or your community than what we have now. There's no this like, oh, we'll just call the cops. I mean, I guess yeah. there would be, but it's going to be less of that. Yeah, um, I, well, I actually think um, reproductive success as a motivator and driver of sort of life satisfaction or just why people do things. I actually think that's one of the things libertarians miss um, the most often uh, in their kind of analysis uh, as to whether people would be happier or less happy in, in this world versus another one. That's kind of an aside, not not to your core point. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Can we? I, well, I jump yeah, we, do we don't have that much more time. We're, we uh, pretty much hit it all. I, okay. I just well, I, hit the last point thing. So. I want to do one of free, this isn't in the excerpt, uh, but I took this conversation to be David Friedman sort of more generally than the excerpt. Maybe that wasn't what you want to do. But, but David Friedman um, uh, on climate change, um, I think he is one of the most sophisticated, if not the most sophisticated, libertarian thinker out there so if you're a libertarian wondering how do how should i think about climate change um read his blog posts i'll attempt to talk about them a little bit now but i think he's he's one of the best um thinkers out there on on climate change uh that's a libertarian um and he's and again he's a nerd he's super smart he's a physicist he reads all the ipcc reports he reads all the papers uh and he's not uh, what some would call a denialist. So he doesn't say that climate change isn't real. Uh, he says that climate change is happening. Um, two of the points that he makes that I think are uh, especially good for libertarians to, to recognize and be aware of. The first is that there's absolutely no reason to assume that the uh, current climate is optimal for human life and human flourishing. And if you put humans first, which I do, I'm not a, I don't think animals, I don't, I don't equate animals as, you know, take a lot of animals before we're talking about a human, at least for me. Um, I think that's a very interesting point, right? Because we're ultimately, we care about, well, what's best for us as a human species, if we're caring about this problem collectively. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason to think that any particular temperature, did I lose you? Shit. You still there? No. Yeah, I'm right there. My internet uh, cut out for a minute. Uh, it's been okay, so it was you. lately. Uh, my bad. I thought it was me. I thought it was me. I started like flipping out because yeah. occasionally it cuts out for me too. Um, Sorry. Go ahead. Let's do it. Was <laughs> so I was just talking. I was just talking like, you know. Um, all right. So uh, I lost it. Um, yeah. Basically that like there's no reason. So it's like if you're thinking about it for humans, there's no reason. Now, so what you can then think about is um, what are the costs? Um, so climate change uh, will have – negative costs there are if you're a libertarian with this externalities type thinking it is potentially true that there are is harm caused from your um uh, pollution uh 
but David says, well, you don't know if the externalities of pollution are even negative or positive. They could be positive. I could be making society better by polluting. We don't even know the sign of the externality. Um, it's clear that there's harms that happen, but there could be greater benefits, right? There could be greater benefits because you're talking about most human beings are not in the bands uh, of the planet that are harmed by climate change. If you look at how much territory is in is in Russia uh, and Europe and even most of America, uh, most of America benefits from climate change. You'll see some damage to coastal cities, uh, but in terms of the productivity of America and Canada, where all of this land is, it actually gets better. Um, uh, that is that we'll have more productive farms um, and uh, and all of these things. Uh, and then he goes further and he says, even if it is negative, that's not sufficient. We need to compare what the costs are from adjusting for climate change to what the harms are, even if the harms are net negative, which we don't even know and are very challenging to prove. Um, but if you look at the the IPC, all the IPCC reports, they estimate the damages. They do not have any positive side of the balance sheet. So they're not saying this is the benefit. This is the economic benefit that will come from having a having a warmer um, planet. Yeah, that's an interesting and, point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead. So I think all this stuff is is really interesting. If you're a libertarian uh, who is you know not sure how to think about climate change or wondering how to think about climate change, I mean, you could probably just do a, a Google search like climate change and his blog. Uh, he has a bunch of posts. He posts about it. I mean, he had a post on Facebook about it. Um, you know, just recently and this is a just as a not that this was like his best post but just as an example of the kinds of insightful things um that he he talks about you know he's so he talks about the, this ipcc it's i think it was like about drought and so the ipcc the latest ipcc report just came out and they're looking at drought and he's going well you know actually this analysis isn't correct because as the temperature gets warmer plants need less water or something like this uh, you know, and they didn't take this into uh, into account. And he so he knows this stuff really well. Uh, and um, he's he's constantly having good insights like this. Like he was really good on on COVID, too. And you might think, oh, this guy's the consequentialist libertarians. They were bad on COVID. No, he was he was really good on COVID, constantly having good insights about the actual cost benefit analysis of various decisions that you might, you know, make. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I really encourage uh, you know following him directly. Yeah, and there's, there's obviously, you know, on COVID, there's people like shit on the consequentialist argument, but it's like, well, maybe you're just not thinking deep enough because say with COVID, it's like, oh, well, you, you know, the you, people would scoff at a consequentialist and assume, you know, they're, they're falling to the narrative, but it's like, okay, how easy is it to point out like, hey, there are consequences for creating a precedent in which they can, re they can behave and, or it's allowed, um, you know, whether you agree with the science or whatever the fuck, like, I mean, whether COVID was, I mean, I, even from the beginning, you know, like even like we all thought COVID was awful. I was still like, uh, this is a really bad idea. Uh, like this isn't going to go well, whether it's bad or not. Cause, uh, you know, what about the next thing? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, it, it is, there's a really good point with the climate change. Uh, and I think it's, a, we need to start shifting our thinking more because a lot of times we're super binary, our, our kind. When it comes to shit like that, like uh, agorism is a good example of that. Like anytime the state overexerts, there becomes more of an opportunity to counter economy. You know, this being the Odyssey dude, you know, like the more the YouTube fucks around, the more that uh, you find out, you know, 
Um, so I mean, you'd be in a free stater as well. The same idea, the same thing applies. Um, the more the state, it's like, we need to stop looking. And you, you, we, we talked about earlier about how, like the idea of if a communist wants to be a communist, it, this idea of that we all need to be free or we need this national freedom is silly. Like, it's really just like, no, we need to find pockets of freedom and move there, you know, yep. just evaluate the current situation and react accordingly. Like, right. I know I was like, Oh my God, this is so bad. It's like, well, is it like, I, I don't know. Have you thought about all the different opportunities that arise out of this? I don't know. You know, so, right. This, I mean, this is getting away from, from Friedman a little bit. So this is yeah. me, not him, but I mean, that's, I'm a, it's about having a homeland. I mean, there's, you know, we don't even something like COVID, right? Like, all right, I don't know. Like my, and I, my position on COVID is basically like do nothing. People yeah. should just be free and just keep living their lives. Okay. A lot of people don't want that, but who cares? There's enough of us that want it. Right. And it's like, we deserve a fucking homeland, man. Like there are millions of us with this beliefs. We have money. We have resources. Let's get a homeland for ourselves where we can live according to our values. Um, and you know, this is my number one belief. And I hope that that homeland can uh, be built in accordance with principles that are similar to David Friedman's. That's certainly, um, you know, my, my aim for that homeland. I hope David, uh, I hope we get to build it while David's still here with us and maybe he can come, uh, come and check it out and all of these things. Um, but it's just like, I don't know. I hate, I hate all this stuff. I hate all the like the fractionalization and this idea that we're going to win everywhere and, and we're going to, you know, it's just, it's just so delusional to me at this point. Um, and if we recognize that, Hey, who cares about persuading people? There's millions of us that are already persuaded. We can have a homeland, you know, in the next decade, if we just get together and work together. Ironically, that's the strongest form of persuasion in my opinion as well. So, you know, like go fucking do it, <laughs> like create a praxis. Uh, all right, I know you, you had sent me some notes and you had one more note, but uh, I know you had a little bit of an out. So I don't know. I mean, that's up to you if you if you really want to hit on that note or not. It was on the uh, the Amish. Uh, oh, yeah. Saw, this, I, well, I, this I, one's really small. So it's a great one to close on right. because it's not a long debate. And I got to say this on Tim Pool recently when I was on there and it, people loved it. And I'm like, I totally stole it from Friedman. And I didn't say it at the time. So at a minimum, this is a chance for me to own up uh, that, that line that some people like. Yeah. I totally stole from David Friedman. Uh, and David Friedman makes the point that the Amish are the most successful anarchist movement in America. The, if you, so if the Amish are the most successful anarchists. And he says that they're the most successful anarchists because they don't pay Social Security. They don't have to register for the draft. Okay? And the Amish did that by yeah. – it's quite similar to the Free State Project to plug to plug uh, my suggestion a little bit. They were together in a physical space, and they just said no. They just said, no, we're not going to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. And they they literally got carve outs from the federal government. And so, you know, people like to that get f so focused on like, let's role play uh, secession and the government's going to come in and crush us. And it's like, OK, or if you just say no, the government won't do that. They'll just give you carve outs. There's precedent for it. They do it all the time. Government regulation and government control is completely like sour grapes, okay? They want to regulate you if they can, and if they can't, they never wanted to, okay? Yeah. Uh, and so when you create a situation in which the government can't control you, they're going to act like they didn't want to control you. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and especially, too, if it's – because I've been saying a lot through a lot of stuff that I would prefer to see soft nullification or soft secession because if you don't make a big formalized thing about it, then it's not this big formalized thing. If you're just like, no, nah, we're not doing that shit, and you don't make a thing of it, like you don't have to throw a big middle finger up to the, the, the state. You can just not do it. And, and yeah. if you do that, then like if you – like say with like people bring up the, the Civil War, it was like, well, this was a big – you know. Uh, you know, a big, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A conflict between the two where they were at each other's throats. But now if the South had, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, I might be wrong, but say the South had gone about it a little bit differently, a little bit more like subtly and just been like, hey, well, we're just kind of not doing it. And we won't say we're not going to make a formalized thing about it. We're just going to kind of do what we want. And then when you complain, you go, oh, well, that's weird. Oh, oh, oh I guess we weren't following your rules. Oh, that sucks. And just still keep doing it anyways. Um, then that would have been a different story. And so this whole formalized process um but i do i do we'll finish out because i know you want to get going but i did want to point out i find it awfully hilarious that you went on a show that had tens or hundreds of thousands of viewers and you made a statement and then you went to go correct it on one that'll get like a thousand <laughs> <laughs> well that's the best way to do it no that's perfect because i got the credit for saying it but now i don't have the guilt uh so it's really an ideal situation everyone thinks i said it and I no longer have to carry around the guilt. So really, this is perfect. Uh, it's the best way to do it. Uh, so highly recommend it, Technique. Yeah, that's genius, really. Uh, you want to go ahead and drop your plugs? I feel like it's a good spot. I know you got to get out of here. So uh, Yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, follow Jose on Odyssey. That's my top <laughs> plug. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm the most active on Twitter. I'm at my full name, Jeremy Kaufman. Um, check out the Free State Project, Free State uh, NH, on Twitter, or they're everywhere. They're on Facebook. They have a website, FSP.org. I think that's the future of liberty. So if there's number one thing uh, to check out, uh, it's absolutely that. Uh, and you can follow me on Odyssey as well. My handle there is K-A-U-F-F-J. All right, cool. I'm going to do my plugs right now, and I'll play an ad after. And uh, you you can feel free to bounce, or you can stick around and talk after. I know you have somewhere to go, so I mean, don't you don't have to worry about hurting my feelings. I know, I know, I know what's up. So, uh, but uh, I'm uh, the No Way Jose. Oh, once again, I, I really appreciate you coming. This was a lot of fun. I was glad to have you on again. Um, but uh, this is a uh, the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can find or this is No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube. You also find me on every major audio podcatcher. I'm on Odyssey as well. My Twitter is at Jose. If you'd like to support me at patreon.com slash NoWayJose2020, that would be awesome. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Uh, with that, uh, it's been awesome. I really appreciate having you. I'm going to play the ad. You guys should definitely go check these guys out so I can get some money. And also, they are uh, people who have been supporting Liberty uh, content creators and the like. So it's definitely a good person to support. So I appreciate it, Jeremy. Thanks. It was great to be on. If you love playing fantasy football but struggle to find the right resource to help with your research, the guys at Football Insider Edge have you covered. Whether you are a season-long player, focused on DraftKings or FanDuel contests, or just like to make the occasional wager each week on a couple of games, Football Insider Edge provides you with the research tools and in-depth analysis to take your game to the next level. With their proprietary model, matchup charts, and industry award-winning content the team at football insider edge have devoted themselves to educating their subscribers helping them improve their play in a few special moments winning life life-changing money they are proud of the community they've built through weekly interaction their slack chat channel and take great pride in helping others to achieve their goals of becoming better fantasy players as supporters of the show and of the liberty movement as a whole they are currently offering a 20 percent discount on any monthly or full season plan on their website 
Just go to footballinsideredge.com and use the code Jose at checkout to take advantage of the discount offer today. So if you guys are fantasy football people, go check this out. It's a win-win-win. I win, you win, they win. There's no loss here. It's fucking capitalism, baby. Let's do it.